Hi everybody, thanks for choosing my podcast to download and listen to. I wanted to record this introduction before the podcast started to give you a brief idea of who I am and what you might expect initially. This is the first episode of this podcast and the first thing you're going to notice is that I'm not a professional broadcaster. So initially you're going to hear a lot of unprofessional ums and uhs at the beginning since this is really the first time I've ever broadcasted anything. I expect that to get better though for future episodes, but I did want to point that out for this particular one so that you're not blindsided by how bad it's going to sound. I'm a forensic psychiatrist and this podcast is called The Psych Effect, but that doesn't mean that it has anything to do with psychiatry or psychology necessarily. What this pod will be is me speaking to interesting people and talking about random things learning about what they do and getting their thoughts on many different subjects, including science, technology, society, current events, and culture. So that's the premise. Uh, you know, if I can paraphrase a line from George Costanza, this is a show about nothing and possibly also something. My guest on this first show is Russell Shannon. He's a computer and electrical engineer. So without taking up any more time, Here's the pod. Hope you like it and come back for more. It's a season one, episode one. Um, I'm joined uh, today by uh, Russell Shannon, um, who uh, is a uh, engineer. What, what kind of engineer are you, Russ? You're an electrical engineer, am I right? I'm a electrical and computer. Electrical and computer engineer. So, um, I, you know, I. I want to kind of give a little bit of a background uh, as far as like the, this podcast is kind of going to be a general podcast. Um, you know, I started this uh, just to kind of bring on interesting people and just talk to them about uh, the things that they do and the interesting things that they do. And there's no kind of format of any kind. So, um, you know, I, I, I asked you to do this. Do you, do you listen to any podcasts at all? Russ? I used to. I used to listen to the John Hodgman podcast quite a bit, um, the Ricky Gervais podcast as well, but I haven't listened to any in quite a while. Okay. All right. Um, I, I listen to a few too, and, and most of them, you know, are interesting to me, but, but a lot of them just kind of, kind of chat. And that, that's sort of, that's sort of what I, I find interesting. Um, and that's sort of kind of what I like to do too. So, um, you know, Tell, tell everyone, uh, you know, well, first, I, I guess we should start by saying, you know, we know each other. Um, uh, we know each other from, from way back, from college, actually. Over 25 and, years. Yeah, 25. Wow, it's been that long? Six, I guess. <laughs> wow, yeah. Well, that dates us, um, you know, specifically. But 
the reason the reason I wanted to have you on is because I think that what you've done is super interesting, and I think it's something that uh, other people would want to hear about because one one of the things that you did um, after after college, we both went to Hartford. After you left Hartford, is you went to England, and that's where you got your advanced degrees in engineering, right? Uh, that's right. That's right. So yeah, I was very lucky that the University of Hartford had a, a scholarship to send one person every year over to Oxford in England to get either a master's degree or PhD. And way back in, I guess, 1998 now, I, I got that scholarship and was on my way over to, to Oxford. I'm just an incredible place. So it's one person in the entire school got that scholarship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was given to a one graduating senior every year. I was I was kind of lucky in that uh, when they interviewed me for it, they were kind of they, they hadn't given it to an engineer for, for a while. So they were kind of looking to give it to an engineer, I think. And uh, the fact that I had lived in, in Europe before, they, they liked that as well. I I'd lived in uh, in Scotland and, and France before that in the, the late 80s and early 90s. So they that combined with the fact that I was an engineer, they said, let's let's give it to this guy. And uh, hopefully they haven't regretted it. <laughs> Who did they give it to before? They hadn't given it to an engineer. Do you remember? Yeah, I, I, I know the person who came after me was, I think, wanted to do law. There was someone doing English. Um, there might have even been an artist or two in there. But I think they hadn't given it to an engineer for like ten years, so they, they, they kind of appealed to appealed to them as well. But I know that they they interviewed several several people. They interviewed maybe 20, 20 folks. I don't know how many actually applied. Wow. Okay. So so you went over to Oxford, and what's what's that like over there? Because um, <laughs> I, I don't. Not many people. Not many people go to Oxford. You know what I mean? Especially from the U.S. Uh, what's that like over there? You know, it's it's a ancient and an and interesting place. I don't know how long have you got? Um, <laughs> well, however long it takes, Russ, <laughs> go for it. The, uh, it. It's really unlike at anywhere else I've ever been. Um, the university itself dates from the mid 13th century. So just your, your surroundings, your, you know, your, you might be going to classes and buildings that are older than the United States. You might be having parties in classes that are in buildings that are older than the United States. Um, do those do those Oxford people party over there? Or they just they lot, just study a lot. It's because that, that's not the idea. Like I, I didn't I didn't imagine that the Oxford people party. I imagine that that's like a study school. Yeah, it's it's both. It's both. Oh, people okay. work very hard, but they also they also party very hard as well. It's it's yeah, there's the high concentration of pubs. Every so Oxford's made up of almost thirty different um, independent colleges and halls. And almost each each one of them has its own its own pub or did at the time. So you've got the college bars, and then you have the bars in town, and there's a, there's just a lot of opportunity to to drink. Absolutely, it's very much the the, the pub culture over there. Did you drink? A lot, too much, probably. What did you drink? Um, a lot of beer, a lot of wine. Um, the Guinness over there. They have Guinness. They have Guinness. Actually, I, I had the opportunity while I was over there to travel over to Dublin and visited the Guinness Brewery um, in my, my last year there. So actually, when you when you go to the Guinness Brewery, there's a tour that you can take 
and at the top of at the end of the tour you're at the top of this tower overlooking Dublin and they give you a free pint of Guinness so one of my best memories is being at the Guinness brewery at the end of this tour overlooking Dublin having my free pint of Guinness and uh and I as I was drinking it, me and the, the person I was with at the time, uh, kind of looking at each other going, this is kind of disgusting. We're probably not going to drink this whole thing, but the beautiful view, free beer, you know. It, yeah. And I'm glad really you said that there. because like, I, I'm not a beer guy in general. Like, I don't know if you remember that from Hartford. I wasn't a, a beer drinker kind of guy. I mean, like I'm Russian. So like Russians don't really drink beer. We drink vodka. Um, I remember and, your wedding. Yeah, it was all vodka, right? It was just, it was just, we all drank vodka. So, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of beer. I, I, there are Russians that drink a ton of beer. And I never understood that because I was never exposed to that. I was always exposed to vodka. And I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing because like I'm telling people now that I've been exposed uh, to underage drinking, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pass that over and, and let that, let that kind of just like lie there. Um, but I might edit that out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, my parents were good people, you know, like, no, they just, they gave 16 year olds alcohol. No, no, it's all right. Um, but so I was, I never understood, I, I'm not a beer drinker anyway, but Guinness like has this thing about it that I just, I can't even put it in my mouth. To me, it tastes like motor oil. Like I went through this thing where I tried to drink Budweiser for a while and people hate Budweiser and I understand completely why they hate it, but I did it like, because I thought it would be like, my friends were drinking it in like residency and I'm like, I'll drink it. And I hated it. And, but Guinness, like, I don't know how people drink it over there. Like, is it a gene or something? Maybe, you know, for, for me, it, for me, it's, Oh, it's Guinness. It's great. I'll have some. And then I get about halfway through the pint and it's like, this is disgusting. I can't drink any more of this. Let me drink something else. And they drink it warm, right? Uh, it depends. You can. Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, oh my God. One of the, one of the, the things about Oxford, there's a lot of tradition. One of the traditions is to have a formal dinner where people from one college will come over and, and have a, this formal dinner in the, the dining hall um, with people from another college. And those formal dinners, you start out in like a little reception area having sherry, and then you go to dinner and you have white wine and red wine. And then after dinner, you have port. So by the end of all of that, you know, most people are, are, are drunk by the end of it. But if you're going to be very formal and, and fancy, that's the way to do it, is you start with sherry, then over dinner, you have white wine and red wine, and then you have port as your, as your after dinner drink. And then you're carried home, like what, in the carriage, because you can't walk home? Like, Pretty much, yeah. There's like, a lot of there's a lot of drunken bicycling that goes on in Oxford. <laughs> What's the food like over there? Because like every England, England's one of those places that like I'm it's on the list to go to, but I want to do it correctly. I don't want to just go for like a weekend. I want to like save up like $10,000 and go for like a month. I don't even know if $10,000 is enough, but, but like every time I hear about England, they say that the food is terrible. And every time I ask about it, it's like, well, why is the food terrible? Or it's like, oh, it's like bangers and mash and fish and chips. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. The food is terrible because it's sausage and potatoes and fried fish and french fries. Like, where do I sign up for that? Because that's like, sounds like really good food to me. You know, so like. It is a lot, it, it is a lot of that. But remember, England was also, uh, 
an empire for however many hundred years. So they have a lot of things from, from different parts of the empire, including some of the best Indian food you've ever had, um, some best um, Chinese food and other, other areas of food from other areas of the world. Um, so there is a lot of kind of traditional um, English food, like you mentioned, but also if you go up to places like Manchester, you'll get some of the best curries you've ever had in your life. Oh, okay. Well, then Maria's going to love that stuff because that that's the kind of food she's into. And it, it's like real Chinese food, not like American Chinese food, right? Uh, yeah, there's some of there's some of that too. But uh, again, obviously, Britain didn't control didn't control China, but they they did control India. So there's a very large Indian population, Pakistani population, um, and they all bring their their tremendous foods with them. So yes, tremendous curries. Um, tremendous Indian food to, to be had, especially in places in Northern England. Um, and there's a lot of American Americanization now too, a lot of hamburgers and things as well. A lot of Starbucks, those sorts of things have kind of crept in over the years. Uh, well, so comforts of home, I guess. That's cool. Did you go to any of the soccer stuff? Any of the soccer matches when you were over there? No, I, I, I didn't. Um, there is a, there was an, is an Oxford United um, football team. Um, I never went to a to a soccer match or football match while, while I was there. Um, one of the big things in Oxford is rowing. I did try rowing during my first first year there. Never again. No one told me that to be a rower, you first have to carry the boat out to the to the river. Right. You're right. Yeah. Well, it's got to get there somehow. You know. Like... Yeah. Exactly. So between carrying the boat and uh, yeah, I, I just wasn't up to it. But that's a big, big thing at, at Oxford. They have regattas every every fall. Uh, there's a lot of competition between the colleges. Um, that's a big, big thing. Oh, at, a uh, lot of upper body strength, Russ. You know, like you got to get in the gym for that. Yeah, I was completely lacking with that. But at least I, I could say I tried. Did what, Did you gain a, even a little bit of upper body strength when you tried it? Like you know, get that chest moving. It's been so long. Who knows? Probably. But <laughs> okay. you know, the other, the other big thing, though, if you can't, you know, row in a, a seven-man or eight-man crew, is something that's a lot more relaxing called punting, where it's like a, it's almost like a gondola. Almost, it's like a, a punt is like a flat-bottomed boat that five or six people can can get into, and it's controlled just like a gondola with like a big metal pole. And you can punt up and down the the Isis is the name of the river there. You can you can punt up and down the Isis on a on a summer summer afternoon. It's a lot more relaxing than you know competitive competitive rowing. People bring food. People bring all sorts of things. The only the only danger really is being attacked by a swan, which does happen. <laughs> Do they have teeth? Do they like bite you or something? Swans? The big neck. They do bite. They do try to get your food. They do try to sometimes get your alcohol. Yeah. And you can't kill a swan because apparently all swans belong to the queen. So the, the best oh, you can no. do is try to the best you can do is try to beat them back somehow. Oh, no, you don't want to mess with the queen. <laughs> One thing that I noticed when you did come back is you picked up the accent. I did? Yeah. See, you didn't even notice it. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's one thing. That's one thing I noticed that happened. You didn't even notice that you did that, did you? I didn't. I didn't. You know, between between living in Scotland for three years and living in England for four years, I'm sure my my voice is has changed over yeah, the years. Yeah, you don't have it anymore. But they they say they say things like uh, uh, Britons like have that question thing at the end, 
where they they end sentences with a question and you were doing that thing <laughs> i think jewish people do that too i don't know do that? Yeah, I don't know. but i i know like when i watch british broadcasting or when i when i listen to like the british sports casting when they when they do uh the soccer they say uh well that was a wicked kick wasn't it or or something like that or i'm not even doing it correctly but you were doing that and i was like wow you, you really picked that up pretty quickly and, and then you lost it since then so there's definitely like this thing when you live over there when you live in a place you just, you just pick up their dialogue you know the thing is when i lived in north carolina and i i wanted i wanted to hurt myself um I probably shouldn't say this in something that's going to be on the internet, but whatever, it's already out there. When I lived in North Carolina, they have this thing where they, they say, uh, Mike could, um, you know, I, I might, might, I might could go to the store. Okay. Uh, you know, I might could do that. It's like, it's a Southern expression kind of thing. And, uh, it, it's, it's bizarre when you're first there. Cause it's ubiquitous. It's everyone says it. And it's weird. Cause you know, I, I lived in Miami and we don't say that here. I you know, I came from New York before I lived in North Carolina because medical the last two years of med school were in uh were in New York and they definitely don't say that there. It's very <laughs> northeast. And to hear it and I was like, wow, that's weird. I'll never say that. And then like two years into my time there, I started saying it like routinely. And oh my God, it was just one of those things. It was like now I'm one of them. <laughs> I, I liked my time there. I think the people were there were really nice, but it's just one of those things you pick up when you live in a place. You just start talking like the people there. We, we think and, that we're we think that we're kind of this this um, monolithic thing that no one can influence me. What are you talking about? And then suddenly you realize you are starting to assimilate. You are starting to talk like those around you. And, that's that's and exactly like, true. And that's, that's America, isn't it? You, you, come from a, a, you come from one place, you go to another, you come from another country, and then all of a sudden right. you become part of America, you know. But I, I what the, th the thing that I wanted to ask you, like, a lot of is because you're an engineer, um, and right now you work for the Navy, right? Right. Okay. Now I, I get it that you like working like two top secret spy shit that um, if you told me stuff, you'd have to come down here and kill me. Um, so I know we can't super go into that, but I'm That's a long way to don't make me travel all that way. I know you're, you're up, you're up in the Northeast, but I'm sure that, you know, because of, because of all the, like the super secret stuff the government does, you could probably just like, call the FBI and they would just send some guy over to my house. And in 20 minutes, like my entire family would be on the news, you know, uh, psychiatrist family found dead in their house. Nobody knows why. Unless they listen yeah. to this podcast. Unless they listen to the podcast, which will never be broadcast because it's not even uploaded yet, but yeah. Uh, but you know, that's like really interesting to me. So, uh, without like telling us all of without saying anything that is super secret like what kind of electrical you're an electrical engineer right what 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 kind of work do you do for the navy so first of all let me say it does not involve aliens in any way that's really so, a shame because i wanted to, i wanted to find out if you knew anything about about area 51 yeah 
the sorry history channel that yeah sorry um also i think area 51 might be an air force thing so are they they not letting no, me know anything about that it's the navy isn't it i thought area 51 is air force no i don't know you know what it might even be like its own thing it might be like the transformers movie like it may be sector seven there you go like it might it might just be like uh it might just be like its own division you know there did you see did you see uh there's a new netflix special um called uh, bob lazar and something it's called bob lazar uh, and uh, I'm trying to find it. It you know when if this podcast ever actually uh, makes it, I'm going to have like a guy doing all this Google stuff for me. It's called Area 51. Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers on Netflix. Have you seen this thing? I haven't. Does he get anywhere near Area 51? Do you know who Bob Lazar is? No. You ever heard that name? Okay. This guy. All right. Um, he, I, I've heard this name before, but it just kind of recently came back up again. Supposedly, this guy's some random physicist from the from the eighties, late seventies and eighties, and he apparently uh, created like an engine he put on his bicycle or like his like his motorcycle or something in the eighties, and he was picked up by uh, the he says the Navy or military branch. I thought it was the Navy um, to inspect a alien craft at this place called S4, which is a section of Nevada that is not Area 51, but near Area 51. And uh, the reason they picked him is because apparently they had a bunch of different scientists and all of them died while they were trying to figure out what was going on with this thing. And they're like, well, we, all of our scientists are dead. Let's just go get this guy. <laughs> of course. Why not? That's, that's his story. Right. So they go in and they, they pick this guy up and he goes in there and he like starts observing this thing. And he, and he thinks it's the coolest thing and the weirdest thing. And they can't figure out anything about it. But the story he tells is, you know, he, it started to get a little weird for him because you know, they couldn't figure out how it worked other than it, it created gravity. It, it literally created gravity. It was a machine that created gravity, which is impossible. Uh, it doesn't, you, need mass for gra you need mass to have gravity. So unless well, he had something incredibly massive. Well, well, that is the thing. It, he said that they, the, the machine used an element that at the time did not exist in our known periodic table. They called it E-111 or E-115, which we know then... From, we, know from, we know from Einstein that in order to have... You know, gravity is, is a, a kind of... This, this is a, a, like a wrinkle in space-time, right? In order to have gravity, you need to have mass. And without mass... To, to generate gravity, you need to then be generating mass, I guess, right? Or there has to be some sort of... Something has to be very massive in order to, to have a gravi gravitational field. Correct. Well, I mean, a black hole is massive and it generates gravity, right? So in theory, this thing could be generating many black holes, right? It could be a, it could be a, a, a singularity. I mean, in theory, right? Like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like do sci-fi weird shit, but like, <laughs> but in Star Trek, the Romulans, 
in Star Trek use a singularity as their drive. The, the Federation uses uh, matter, antimatter, explosion, contain matter, antimatter explosions to generate a warp field. The Romulans use a, a singularity to generate, they, I guess they travel through a singularity. Okay. So what he said was this machine created, well, he said it created gravity. Now, like, I don't, I'm, that's what, that's his, his, the way he said it was when you get close to it and you put your hand up and it repelled your hand. That's what he said. And they said that they did it with this element called E-115, which was then discovered in the early 2000s and named Muscovium. But Muscovium is unstable and it, and it vanishes within like microseconds. But the version that these, these crafts had was stable. It was stable Muscovium, which then was able to generate this field. And so... You know, in well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of pe- a lot of people you get near them, they'll repel your hand too. Well, <laughs> that's what girls said to me in college, actually. <laughs> when they got near me, they I generated gravity and I, I repelled them. <laughs> but it well, gravity is a field, though, so you don't. If you gravity just disturb, it's it's a weak force, right? Gravity. <laughs> It's it's a it's a it's a field, isn't it? Right. The the space time gravity is a a field in space, correct? Because that because because mass mass isn't mass doesn't generate gravity; it warps it. Right. So you don't need mass to generate gravity. Mass warps gravity. So if if this if this machine warped gravity it could it not necessarily create gravity but like manipulate it right one of the one of the issues with a lot of a lot of stories like this and a lot of things that i've unfortunately seen on ancient aliens is that in order for them to work you need more energy than exists in the known universe that things are possible but you need so much energy or you need to generate so much mass based on what we know but if this stable element exists, then it might be able to generate that energy, right? So they, so a bunch of scientists got killed. They said, "Hey, okay, okay. let's go get this guy." They brought right. him in. So this so guy, said, well, he, he doesn't know how it works. He, he clearly demonstrates says he doesn't know how it works. He's just okay, saying then that they, they introduced him to the scientists who, who are still some scientists who are still alive, I guess, not from the original batch of scientists. Right. So apparently they had everything split into divisions. Like they had a metallurgic division, they had the propulsion division, they had, um, which he was part of the propulsion division. They had um, uh, the, like the division that tried to uh, synthesize the, 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 uh, the stuff that it was made of, I guess, I don't know what that's called, but it was all split up. So like, I know divisions would talk to each other, which sounds so government. It almost makes this, it almost makes this story like sound true that the government would have all these divisions and none of them would talk to each other. Okay. Well, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so they, so they said, Hey, that division was wiped out. Talk to this other division about no, this, no, no, gra- no. this gravity it, thing. No, no, no. The propulsion, the scientists that worked in the propulsion division, a couple of them that 
were doing, were, were going into trying to figure this out, like they got radiation poisoning or something like that. that's what he said. I, I, don't, I don't like, I haven't watched this yet. And what do they say to the like the wives of these scientists? Yeah, sorry, the aliens killed your your husband. Sorry about that. Sorry. Uh, well, what do they say when people in government disappear? Uh, oh, nobody you know. who has disappeared. <laughs> really? Like no, no CIA agent has ever disappeared in the government. I don't know. I, you know? I well, I I don't know any CIA agents, but uh, okay. yeah, people re, people retire and die and transfer if, out and transfer you, in. But if you were an agent, Russ, would you tell me? Maybe, well, not on a podcast, but okay, uh, okay. maybe. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, then, well, maybe you'll tell me after the podcast. <laughs> but, but so this guy apparently he like he got scared, so he went and he told his buddies that they were they were testing this thing. The the, the when this thing falls apart for me is that they don't know how it works, but they got it to work. They don't that's know how it falls it apart for you. Well, that, for that's... me, it's like look. The fact that the government may have secrets is not is not a secret. The government has secrets all the time. They kept the stealth bomber a secret for years before they they showed it. They showed the things showed up. So the fact that they may have something like that that's not outlandish. It's it may be dumb and like it may not be true, but it's not outlandish. What makes it weird is like look, we don't know how it works, but we turned it on. Like, really, you turned it on, like, and now you're flying it? <laughs> and that's, and he's like, we tested it. But you don't know how it works, but you turned it on. Really? You turned you turned on this alien craft that supposedly crashed and is in disarray and not working order? Okay, fine. And then he went and got his buddies to go watch these tests at night. And they did it, like, three weeks in a row, and then, like, they got busted, like, on the third week or something like that. And that's when his whole life fell apart because they erased his entire life, apparently, like, all signs of like him being a scientist, working at Los Alamos, having an education, basically completely wiped out. Uh, and some of the stuff that is coming out now, like mirrors some of the stuff that he said. Like, have you seen the video with the the fighter pilot that was chasing one of these things? No, but I've, uh, I've known I've I've known fighter pilots, and they they're they're pretty decent, honest people. You got to see this. I, I wish we were doing this video because I would show it to you, but the Navy actually declassified. And this is a Navy pilot. The Navy declassified this. Uh, the Pentagon sent it out. Now, the Pentagon could be making these videos up and sending them out as like this. Here, here you go, UFO guys. I, I did see one analysis of, of this. I think I saw something online that that there was a scientific analysis of these videos that what the pilot might was actually seeing were, were artifacts in his in his system and his, his visual system and his targeting system so he was actually seeing whatever he, whatever it is but what he was seeing were artifacts in the system not something you know, external to the aircraft but some the, sort of optical artifacts it, when he was looking in the in the system Right. I have no, you know, when when they're flying, they've got their helmet. They're looking at their radar. They're doing a lot of other things at the same time. Um, so I have I have no doubt that, like I said, fighter pilots are are some of the best people you you could ever meet. Um, and I have no doubt that whatever he was seeing, he was seeing it. But what he was seeing may have been some artifact in the system, in his optical system, and in in his uh, the sensors versus you know something actually flying outside his aircraft. Okay. Because this, they interviewed the the guy, the Navy guy, the the pilot who saw it in two thousand 
four, I want to say. And he swears he looked out the window of his cockpit and he saw it out the window. And he says he chased it for like a minute or two. And he was looking at it outside the window. And this guy is a 25-year-old veteran of the Navy fighter pilot, you know, commander something. Absolutely. And, you know, even if he saw something, it doesn't mean it's aliens. It could be the, the Chinese. It could be Russians. It could be whatever. It could be a balloon. It could be something else, something falling from space. There's a lot of stuff out there that, that a pilot might encounter. That's true. That's true. Um, when you listen to him talk, I'll send it to you after this, but if you listen to him talk, he says it moves like nothing you've ever seen. And if it did do that and it's Russian, why haven't the Russians that put it out? Like if they had this kind of technology that moves like that, I would think they would have already blown us up because Russians don't screw around, man. One of, the, one of the issues I've always had with aliens is, is why are they so sneaky? If they're really aliens flying around, why why aren't they landing in Central Park? Why are they always, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere with so, some guy in a in a truck at two a.m. In, in the morning? Well, yeah, I always had that same issue too. But now they're like with fighter pilots. Apparently, are chasing these things, and so that that makes it all different. But but like if you were if you had gravitational technology that could send you anywhere in the universe, and you found this planet with a bunch of creatures that didn't look like you and didn't talk like you but didn't communicate like you would you just like land in the middle of their population and be like hey guys how you doing i'm from another planet uh want to want to have want to have coffee would you do that my my theory is there's a there's a planet out there where it's all dogs and we're never <laughs> we're never going to be able to communicate with them they're never going to be able to fly you know to earth but we're going to find this planet and it's going to be like dog-like creatures with no technology, but they've just been there on their planet having a good life for, you know, billions and billions of years. I think, I think that's going to be the dream of the dream of like most, most people that have a dog planet where like, it's the best, it's going to be human's best friend planet that the, you know, that's probably like Elon Musk's like SpaceX thing. That, that aliens are, are very advanced and have all kinds of technologies and are willing to travel to Earth. I mean, that's a long, long ways. Why are oh, they even coming here to begin oh, with? It, it may not be that they're advanced at all. It may be that they're, you know, these like perfectly like unadvanced creatures that like stumbled upon, you know, it, like we're thinking that they had to go through the evolution that we went through. Like they went through, you know, uh, internal combustion engines and then you know they've gone through the stuff that we went through but it's entirely possible that you know whatever element it is that runs this engine is ubiquitous and natural on their planet and they never went through all of this and they just went through this gravity drive as their first piece of technology and it's like wow isn't this cool that we can like go faster than the speed of light as like the first thing they did rather than have to go through, you know, rockets and things that have to like go out of the back of something or that we have to do because we don't have that technology. We're, we're assuming these people have to evolve exactly the same way we do. And that's, that doesn't necessarily have to be. 
even if they even if they evolve differently, there are certain things like as you approach the speed of light, your your mass becomes becomes more and more and more. So if 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 they're developing something that they can travel close to the speed of light, they also have to be you know infinitely massive in order to enable that. Or they found some way to break E equals mc squared. So there are you know there's certain things that we like to think are constant in the universe that you just can't travel easily between one point and another without being either incredibly massive, um, which in itself would stop you traveling so fast. So yeah, it's, I, I don't think any of that stuff has re, has reached Earth. And I think if you dig into into it, it's easier easier explanations like, like for that for that guy, probably uh, mental instability. For the fire, fighter pilot, probably his system was showing him something that wasn't there. Um, I think there are probably a lot of other explanations that are more more down to earth. What about Einstein Rosen Bridge? I can't disprove it. I mean, I I don't know. I I, I don't know enough about it. Um, I don't. I think if anything goes in, you're probably never going to see it again. And you're probably never going to know what happened to it. If you could stabilize the internal part of an Einstein-Rosen bridge, in theory, you could create a wormhole, right? But you would need that. You would need an external energy source that pushing outside, pushing outward, right, on on that force that's collapsing it. I think this is where it gets gets into. You would need more energy than there is in the universe to do some yeah. of this stuff. <laughs> this is this is one of those things that I do at night. Is I'm on this <laughs> physics kick where. All I do is read physics books and sit there and like come up with ways that these things can can happen and you know quantum physics books and stuff like that and it's um, it's utterly fascinating to me because one thing, uh, one thing that that I have started re reading a little bit about is quantum computing and what it can do and what it can't do. And it's it's one of those things that's it's sort of mind-boggling before you have someone sit down and actually explain it to you. Um, quantum computing is very very good at solving one type of it type of issue, but it's not good at solving 99% of the problems out there. And it's really something that's in its infancy right now. That um, you know it could it could really have a big impact on on cryptography. It could have a big impact on on the types of problems that that we can solve in the future. Like even what, to, what can it solve? It can solve things like finding the the shortest path between between two nodes. Like if you have a if you have a map or some sort of, of um, environment with multiple nodes and you want to find the shortest path between them, um, they're very very good at, at doing that kind of thing. Um, it's but it's not a general use computer. It's not something you could just you know send faster email or or something like that on. Um, it's, it's very, very good for a certain small specific set of, of problems. And they're, they're also huge, right? Like they take up an entire room. They're huge. They take a lot of cooling. I think they have to be the, the, the main portion of it near needs to be down near absolute zero. It's they're very expensive. It's like kind of like mainframes were in the sixties that there aren't a lot of them, but you can, you can plug in and, and get a little bit of computing time for your particular problem. Did you see that uh, apparently they reverse time in one of them? 
uh, the Moscow Institute of Physics, um, the, they, they found a way to reverse time. Uh, I mean, it's look, when you say reverse time, what they did was they, they, um, and again, I, I'm not a physicist. I'm like a pop physicist. Like I took physics for like a month in Hartford and then realized I couldn't be a doctor and a physicist at the same time. And now all I do is I read physics books and, and, uh, like online articles, but apparently they sent a quantum particle through the quantum computer and it returned the particle they sent before it or something like that. We, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's been validated or, or what, what the, I haven't really read up about that, but there's a lot about quantum physics that we just don't know. We don't know how it works. We don't know how spooky action at a distance works. Um, there's a lot that we don't know how two, two particles separated in, in space can have an effect on each other. Yeah, this stuff is, this stuff is so weird. Like when you drill down into the quantum world, everything gets super weird. Like everything macro is fine because it's macro and you can see it. But the thing about macro stuff is it's still quantum. And so even the macro stuff, you got to look at it from a quantum perspective. That's the, uh, the book I'm reading now is about many worlds. And if you look at it, if you look at the, 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 the Schrodinger equation, that's, that's kind of what the thing is. It's like, Oh, we thought everything's cool with the macro world. Uh, but then in the quantum world, Schrodinger takes over the Schrodinger equation takes over. And it's like, uh, you know, when we measure the, the quantum particles, then we see it and we know where it is and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. And let's just measure it and do calculations. But it's like, wait, but aren't you quantum too? So don't you have an effect on the particle? And then it's like, wait, now you're like, you're screwing with all this physics, man. You're screwing less up with all those physics. It's much less though. I mean, the, the, I think that the thing about the quantum space is that the, the statistics, the, the probabilities get kind of non-zero, right? I know that every time I look at my house, my house is going to be there. But I don't know that about, uh, you know, a, a particle, a subatomic particle. It may be in a different place. It may be a different different quantum state. But I know every time I look at my house, it's going to be there. Right, because, of, because of probabilities, right? But like, um, there, but like, say, you know, you you know, you decide to, you're, you oh, there's, I, you know, even though there's a possibility that the house won't be there, 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 there's a, there's a statistical probability that one day I'll look at my house, it'll be gone, like Schrodinger's cat. Um, and, and right, technically, before I look at it, it's both there and not there. But in the, the Newtonian world, things kind of follow. No, nice, uh, that's because, pattern. But that's because there's so many quantum particles in that house that when you add them all together, the odds of them not being there and being in another place are astronomically low because there's trillions of particles in right. that, in that the, the, the wave pattern of all of those particles in that's the, the, and that space is so likely going to be there. But when you, but when you like walk in and like decide to, 
you know, pull out a, a, a banana versus an apple. And, and I, I may be doing this wrong, but this is my interpretation. If you decide to pull an apple or a banana off of the counter to eat, you have decided to do both. And in one choice, you did an apple and the other, you did a banana and you split into two separate universes. And, and again, I may be doing this completely wrong, but there are, there's another copy of you somewhere eating a banana and there's another copy of you eating a, an apple. Right. Now you're getting into the kind of sliding doors, right? With Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, I, yeah, sort of. And, and, um, there's even there's even an app for the iPhone for that. It's called the uh, the Universe Splitter, <laughs> where it, it really it sends it sends a signal to the Large Hadron Collider in it's in Sweden, right? And Switzerland, Switzerland, and it, it you put in two choices that you want to make, and you hit send, and it sends a signal to Switzerland. It the particle goes down the tube. It splits. And then it gives you the answer. And that tells you which, it tells you which universe you're in. <laughs> and, 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 and dead serious, it's there. It, it doesn't exist for Android. It's only for iPhone. And it's like 199. Uh, this stuff, you know, this stuff is, it's like so weird. And I swear, like, I, I have this feeling, I, I have this conspiracy that Elon Musk is really creating SpaceX just so he can find aliens. Find what? So he can find aliens and be the guy that found aliens. Oh, probably. You know, my my theory is that there, there probably are aliens, but they're 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 microscopic. I think on Mars we're going to find either some microscopic life or we're going to find fossils. Um, I don't think anything lives on Mars today, but I think we're going to find some fossils on Mars. I think we might find some microscopic life on Mars, uh, maybe in the ice caps. Um, I don't think we're going to find something to come out and say, hey, I'm going to kidnap you or, or, or if ship, our ship broke. Can you help us? I think no, it's going I, to be I, more, more like, I think it's going to be more like, oh, here's the fossil of something that lived in a Mars ocean 10 million years ago or 10 billion years ago. No, I agree with that. And then that, that alone is going to blow up like the entire consciousness of the planet. I don't even know. I don't even know if NASA is going to tell us that, to be honest with you. Because think about the implications of that. You know, because I, I think the government is a lot less secret than you than you think. I, I don't believe that for a second. Like that, that's I don't believe in conspiracies. Like as a psychiatrist, I tend to try to debunk them. But that is the conspiracy that I definitely believe that the government is secretive. And if you think about it for a second, cons right now you look up at you look up at the sky like when you're not in a city. Uh, because city, the light pollution makes you think there's nothing out there. But if you go to a place where there's no light pollution, and I mean really no light pollution, like out in the country country uh, or places like uh, there's a place in, in Israel called Masada, I think, mm -hmm. where you're on, it's on a mountain somewhere and it's, there's literally nothing there. But so the Roman, the Roman siege of Masada, right? I, I, I believe so. Yeah. Maria said she was out there. The, 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 city up on a mountain that the romans lay siege to in the i guess the first first or second century that sounds right yeah yeah, yeah. and and you go out there and there's nothing there i've never been there but she said she's been there and you look up and it looks like like it's it looks like daytime 
because there's the whole sky is is full of light. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm and sure. people don't know that because most people live around cities and they look up and it's dark and they're like, oh, you know, it's dark. There's nobody out there. But there's so many stars. But the yeah, problem think, is we don't have a reference for that. I think there's definitely something out there. I just don't think it's coming here. I don't. <laughs> nor do I think we're going there anytime soon. No, we're definitely not going there anytime soon. But but if we had, we don't have a reference point either. So like we don't know, you know, like we only have a reference point of one. We know we're here. But if we had a reference point of now, we see two planets within the same solar system that have life. Now we have a reference point of, you know, it's much more common than we think it is. And now we can use that reference point to make calculations of how much life could actually be in the universe. It could be unbelievably high. It could be. And they're still finding, you know, creatures that live at the bottom of the ocean where they thought no one, no one could live. I know. Things like that. But you know, some of the moons of Jupiter are are good candidates for for that sort of thing. That that they may have liquid oceans when you when you drill down. And how do we actually get a probe into those into the 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 atmospheres of some of those moons to see if there's anything really there? I know that's what I'm saying. But and, and if you and if you find like something on Mars, which is like the planet next door, like it's like it's like it's like it's like living in a it's like living in a in a community where there's nobody around you. You think there's nobody around you and you've lived there forever and you think there's nobody around you and you can't leave your house. And all of a sudden you send out your dog and the dog comes back with a bone and you're like, are you kidding me? You know what I mean? Like, I didn't think there was anyone here. And all of a sudden there's there's a bone. Like it, it, it would just be like, people would freak out. And the implications of that you know, for religion and stuff like that would be, I, I, I don't know. NASA wants to put people back on the moon by 2024. Um, one of the coolest things that I've ever worked on was we, we went down and worked with NASA on the previous moon mission, the Constellation program, when it was just starting up. And that at that time, I worked in support equipment. And they wanted to know, like, what kind of equipment do we need to live and work on the moon because we think it's so, sort of similar to living and working on an aircraft carrier. Um, so we, we collaborated with NASA to put together a, a report. It's, it's, I forget the name of it now, but it's something about um, what kind of a, a like support equipment, what kind of equipment you would need to live and, and work on the moon. For, what, what kind of maintenance do, do you need to do? When are things gonna break down? Uh, how do you replace parts on the moon? If you bring a 3D printer with you, can you you know make parts when they fail? Um, that 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 kind of thing, and that was probably one of the coolest things I've I've done because we got to go inside a, a space shuttle hangar when the space shuttle program was still was still active. See a space shuttle up close, that was really cool. Um, also traveled to to Houston and saw all the the great stuff there. Um, it was just a really really um, interesting thing that I've been able to do through through this job is working with NASA for the year or two to put together that report. That's really cool. How would you generate electricity in the sun up there? Uh, solar. You've got a lot of solar. I mean, the International Space Station has those huge solar arrays, right? Right. Um, that would be my main thing if I were an astronaut or still NASA solar. You've got 
uninterrupted solar. Um, I know on Mars there's so much radiation. You know, maybe you could do something with that to generate electricity. But um, definitely solar would be would be number one. Is that going to be enough to 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 keep you know life support printers and vehicles? Is that is that enough power? It's for the International Space Station at the moment, but it's not. I mean, you you need rocket fuel for your rockets, obviously, and that you have to bring with you. NASA has this thing they called they call uplift mass, and everything is assigned like a number uplift mass because that's what they really care about. Not only does it work, but what's the mass of this? We only have so much uplift mass in this 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 shuttle or this rocket or whatever. So we need it not only to work and be safe and usable, but we need it to to weigh not a, not so much that we don't want to put it on the rocket to begin with. So they're they're really concerned about weight in a in a way that that maybe um, other areas of the government aren't. Well, right up. Well, right now our rockets burn O2, right? They mix oxygen with. Uh, uh, hydrogen is that is that how it burns? I, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I thought it, I thought they, they liquid they burn liquid oxygen or something. I don't I don't I don't know. But you can't carry that to the moon. It's too heavy. It's just if you're, th- if you're gonna then launch to Mars from there, you're gonna have to get it there somehow. What about ion drive? Um, I thought that there was some, there was, NASA was working on a, uh, it's, geez, these are the times where I wish I knew more about it than I do, but it's, it's, it's an electric, I guess it's electric. I don't know. It's, it's a drive that pushes particles out the back of an engine, uh, ion, a uh, charged ion particles out the back. And that's how it generates thrust, but you can't do it when you have a lot of resistance. So you'd have to put it in space, start it because the acceleration is poor. But once you get it up to a certain speed, it can go really fast because there's no friction. Yeah, if it, if it works, fantastic. So that would and be I, a way to do it. If you can get that thing to the moon and start that drive up and they'll get you to Mars pretty quickly because there's no there's no resist air resistance in space. One of the one of the guys I went to Oxford with was a optical engineer, a really smart guy from from a small country in Eastern Europe, and his whole contention was that it was possible to get to the moon, but that you couldn't then launch from the moon and get back to Earth. So he thought the whole moon landings was a was was uh, you know some CIA operation or something because in his mind he didn't think you could actually launch from the moon and I I pointed out to him a couple of years ago that there are a lot of YouTube videos of from the Apollo program of rockets lifting up from the moon like we had remote control cameras that actually captured the uh, the capsules taking off from the moon uh, so the videos are there we can we can't actually leave the moon but you know, some people think I don't know what's what's going on with some people, but he didn't he didn't think you could take off from the moon. He thought we could go to the moon, but we couldn't take off from the moon. And this, I, I, you know, 
guy had a PhD from Oxford, and he uh, he did not think you could take off from the moon, but he thought you could go to the moon. I, I don't right? understand that. How can you not take off from the moon, but you could take off from Earth, which has a a higher, yeah. which requires a higher exit velocity because of the gravity. Like, like, yeah, the Earth has like six times as much gravity, right? So, right. I, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it still boggles my mind to, to this day. Um, what was his PhD in? He was an optical engineer. So, so presumably he knew physics, presumably. At, at least of light, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. He, he, like I say, he came from a, a Eastern European country that didn't have very good dealings with NATO. And he was very mistrustful about the West in general. So I think that that may have clouded his his thinking a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was a weird theory that, yeah, we could go, but we couldn't get back, even though there are videos of literally of Apollo landers lifting off from the moon. <sighs> There's this thing about like smart people that like hold strange beliefs um, that just don't make any sense to me, but lot of people that, that you know just because you're smart doesn't mean you don't hold strange beliefs it doesn't mean you're going to work hard it doesn't mean you're going to be successful um you know it's really not correlated to anything when you get down to it i know i know we uh we might have to wrap this up because i, I know uh you might have something some place to go and uh we'll probably have to take that up at the next time and we didn't even get to your stuff at the navy Okay. So, that you, so that you could have me killed. That's okay. Safer, safer this way. Yeah, I know. Well, could, will you come back another time and, and do this again? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Russ. Um, but And uh, thank you, uh, people, for listening. And uh, hope, to, hope to have you guys uh, on for the next time.